Get some recipes. Yeah. Yes, sir. I can't believe you've done this. Welcome to the Evolve Podcast, a podcast that explores personal evolution through our choices and overcoming life's challenges. The Evolve community is your ultimate destination for personal growth and evolution. True to form, I'm, I get to continue to be the dumbest person in the room. That's fantastic. Thank you. Did you ever get a, uh, uh, a quantum physical uh, explanation for how to uh, bake a meatloaf from a porn star? Bake a meatloaf from a porn star? Like, uh, like we were talking about, Bill, we like to start the show... Uh, by asking our guests what's inspiring them right now. Uh, is there some sort of music you're listening to? Is there a book? Uh, uh, is there something that is uh, a person in your life? What's inspiring you today? Well, what inspires me right now is just doing my art kind of thing. And that's not a literal thing, but more of a figurative thing of just building a brand and kind of watching in real time how people react to what we do and how we build it. That to me right now gets me out of bed so early. I honestly go to sleep at night and think, okay, if I hurry and go to bed, it'll be 5 a.m. real soon and I can get up and start over. <laughs> I haven't been like that for a while, but it's been fun. That's exciting. And I love how you talked about it, that your art is this creative process that you go through as an entrepreneur and a creator. Uh, art is many things to many different people and uh, creation through business and through product development and brand development. Uh, that certainly is an art. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not that good at it, but I sure enjoy it. So <laughs> that's one of the things. I, I think there'd be a few that would disagree with the fact that you're not good at it. You've created some pretty amazing things. Well, thank you. And, you know, it's funny because all businesses have their dark moments. And during the dark sure. moments that we've had, the only other thing that ever scares me isn't, oh, geez, you're going to lose this money or, oh, boy, you mortgage this or this out of the other. It's always how will I express myself if this goes away? How will I uh, do something that makes me smile? And so, and there's a lot of things that make me smile, but during the nine to five hours, that's the one. So, yeah. What a, what a great perspective. It, it really, it's, it, I can tell you as a, as an artist who draws and paints and I create in a lot of different ways, I get that same feeling when I finish a project I wonder what the next thing is that's going to uh, get my juices flowing. Um, and it's almost like, I don't know if you feel like this, but when you get close to a project being done, do you ever find yourself dragging your feet a little bit because you don't want it to finish because then you have to jump onto the blank page of what's next? Oh yeah. All the time. And, and I, I enjoy drawing as well. And I'll, I'll shadow and shade stop for hours just because I'm not quite sure what's next. And I'm not mm. quite sure I want to leave this one. So you kind of putz around for a little. And I think it's all the same metaphor, you know? Yeah. How, how did you get there? Like if you, if, if, if you could go back to say one or two or three moments as a child, you know, and at any age, 12, 10, like if you could go back to any of those ages, what age would it be that you kind of started to flirt with this, and, and see some things happening or possibly like, where would you go to? What age would you go back to where you said, oh, 
I, I can see it started there. Hmm. You know, Miles, that's funny because there is a definitive moment when it started and I knew it. We lived in Rose Park. It's not exactly a glamorous part of town. And my mom was a single mom. And my bike ended up getting ripped off and I parked it out in front of Northwest Junior High School for a basketball clinic or something that got stolen. And my mom's like, sorry, you're on your own. So we took these, we, we saw a bike sticking up out of the Jordan River and the forks were sticking up. And the thing that back then was, I guess, in the 70s, it was cool to, you bought, you stole bikes, you stripped the parts off and threw the rest in the river. So oh, we wow. started getting these okay. meat hooks with ropes and we drug this bike out and we, <laughs> When we drug the bike out. I don't even think I want to ask where you got meat hooks from. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That's kind of a funny story too. But my dad, yeah. my friend's dad was a butcher. And so okay. we okay. tied him to a rope and we drug the river. And as we did it, we started collecting all these carcasses and putting them back together as single bikes. And I, my mom was gone working every day. So we were kind of left to our own. So there was no one to tell you, you couldn't do something. So right. we opened up the garage. We started hosing down all the bikes and putting all these pieces back together, making Frankenstein bikes. And, wow. and we were selling them to the neighborhood kids who had all had similar situations where couldn't get a bike or theirs was broken. We'd sell them for seven bucks a piece. And I was just like enamored with the process. Okay, now wow. we can put this together. That is cool. And one day my mom comes up and she's trying to get in the driveway and every kid in the neighborhood is in the driveway. And she's like, Billy, you can't do this every day. And I'm like, why not? She goes, it's just, it's just annoying. And then she gets out <laughs> and, I, and I come in the house and I have 75 bucks in my pocket. And she's like, where'd you get that? I go, that's how much money I made today selling bikes. And she was a secretary and she's making 120 bucks a week. And she's like, okay, just make sure the kids stand over to the left so I can get in and out of the driveway. And she, was all about, she was all in after that. Oh, I love it. What a great story. And how, how old were you then? How, what, was the, what was the age? I was nine. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. And I had this Entrepreneur little toy. Entrepreneur at nine. Yeah. We had a little toy uh, cash register that was my sister's. And we tried to load, you know, and it's the cash drawer it didn't even work. So we're loading cash in it sideways. Like one stuff. of those old plastic. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. But it made us feel you. official. Yeah. And it was so funny. So. That's amazing. Nine years old. Miles. Nine years old, starting your career. Wow. Yeah. Well, and with that, folks, we want to welcome you to another episode of the Evolve Podcast, a podcast that explores personal evolution through our choices and overcoming the challenges that life throws at us. Uh, asleep in his lounge chair at the Bellagio in Las Vegas is Casey Mitchell. And uh, unfortunately, because he's asleep, he will not be joining us today. Um <laughs> uh, and the man who has made more ramen in the last week than you will ever make in your entire life, <laughs> stealing Wi-Fi from the Amish in Oberlin, Ohio, is W. Miles Riley. <laughs> Welcome, Miles. Oh, hello, everybody. <laughs> and so sunburned and from snowboarding in my Speedo in the mountains of Utah, I'm Steve Cutler. Today, our guest is Bill Crawley. Uh, Bill, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. Well, thank you, guys. I was excited that you'd give me an opportunity to get in public and speak. Yeah, That's this cool. is great. So uh, for our listeners that don't know Bill, Bill's a Utah native who's absolutely addicted to talking ideas and turning them into companies, but maybe not for the reasons that you think. 
Yeah, the money's fine, Bill says, but he discovered years ago that building brands, products, and cultures can be far more expensive on a creative level or expressive on a creative level than just about anything he has found. So Bill has conceived, started, and sold six different companies. Bill says that just like a good sculpture, at some point, you have to stop chiseling and move on to the next work of art. This philosophy keeps him creating, building, and starting new projects. Bill has an incredible wife and four kids who are his total life. He uh, and his dog's favorite thing to do are trail run together. And his pastime produces a lot of great mental clarity for both Bill and his dog, who he bounces his ideas off of. So, um, Bill, once again, welcome. Um, we talked about in the pre-show about how you started as an entrepreneur at nine years old. Um, and every time I talk to you, it seems like you've always got a lot of irons in the fire. What are you currently working on right now? Well, I'm kind of multitasking a little bit. I had started a company that made fitness equipment and it wasn't quite there yet. So I had hired a team to kind of take it to the next level and they did a great job, which kind of pushed me out of a job. So I let that, I just dabble around that while they do their thing. They're a lot smarter than I am. And I created a company now that is kind of my passion. Steve, you and I both love cars and I always have been a formulator and I formulated my own car waxes and dabbled with things to make leather come back to life and always played around with it. And that is what I'm doing right now is building a company that makes car restoration products or detail products. So picture if turtle wax is Budweiser, then we would be blue moon or some draft kind of craft beer. Oh yeah. You're the craft. There you go. Yes. We okay. make it in small batches and we make it the very best and we, you know, we charge appropriately for it. And people who absolutely love cars love the stuff. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on this moment. But it's and that's not called lithium, lithium about, correct? Lithium yep, is the name of it? Yeah. That is called lithium. Now, let's we, just, dive, can we digress like one minute? Um, go for it. Uh, your, your, your athletic stuff, the Terracor? Yes. I don't know if you remember, it totally transformed how I went about boxing at Lifetime Fitness. Oh, I remember you were, I was, I was always going miles. Come on, baby, bring it. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And then I started, I started putting people up on it with their boxing gloves on and we would box and they would have to maintain stability on the terracore while we box. And I, I could hit them not hard because even a light tap, they could kind of fall off of it. But what it was is they had to maintain a certain amount of core stability to stay up. That's and right. once we started playing with that, that totally transformed my training, uh, my clients in the gym. It was like a, an amazing piece of equipment. People should know that you are the man behind that. well there's lots of people behind it i just was lucky enough to be part of it so yeah it's it's been fun though we've enjoyed so on that topic let's talk terracore because that uh is really uh, you know i've i've been had been in fitness for probably over 20 years before i officially kind of uh retired and moved on to a different segment or a different sector and i gotta say terracore was one of my all-time favorite uh products and i think that what you built not only had great application in the gym or in home, but it was 
by far the most durable product that I had ever used. Now, I've seen a lot of products and I've been pitched a lot of products over the years and 99% of them are just plain garbage. Terracore was amazing because you, you built a product and, and I guess a, a suite of products uh, with the benches and whatnot that they just, they were bulletproof. So how did you decide or how did you come up with this idea of coming up with this Terracore? So for people who don't know what it is, They've got to look it up. They got to see it. It's really hard to explain, but it's almost like you're standing on this bubble, right? When you're working out and right. yet you can flip it over and there's handles and there's so many different ways. There's latch points to where you can put bands on it. I mean, you can do probably hundreds of different types of exercises with a TerraCore. How did you come up with this idea? What was the, what was the beginning? What was the genesis of that? Well, it's so funny because it is so integrated to you, Steve, that you probably don't even realize that. But some of my worst nightmares, I can come back and say, uh, you were part of them. <laughs> <laughs> There's many people that tell me I'm part of their worst nightmares. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you remember back when, when Lifetime was, when all the treadmills faced over the functional fitness area before you right. guys went and redid everything. Right. So yeah. every morning I, and during the winter, I'd be grinding away on the treadmill, looking out the back windows. Yep. And he used a trainer near there named Joe mm-hmm. before miles was there and remember him. Yep. And I, every morning I'd be sitting there watching him train people on the physio balls. And one day I'm down in the locker room and he happens to come in he's right next to me. Hey, what up, Joe? You know, we give it the small talk and I start quizzing him on the physio ball. And he's like, he's telling me of the benefits of it. And I'm intrigued. And I'm like, well, so if it's so cool, why doesn't everyone do it? He goes, well, because you look like a klutzy fool doing it. <laughs> you know, you're rolling around <laughs> on the beach ball. And yeah, unless you true. have someone there who knows what they're doing, mm-hmm. you're not going to do it correctly. And you're going to fall off and get a set of weights in your grill and break all your teeth. And yeah. we kind of chuckled and then went off to our own thing. So the, that was the kind of genesis behind it is I thought, well, what if we could take that dynamic, unstable surface and attach it to equipment that, people more intrinsically understood like a bin or you know any kind of piece of basic fitness equipment we could get rid of the foam and put air there instead causing you to integrate more core muscles because you were stabilizing at the same time and so that was basically how it all came together i got the first prototype i called pat regan and i said hey you don't know me, but I'm a member of Life Fitness, and I really want to show you this equipment. And he was the gentlest, nicest guy in how he let me down. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the art of the letdown. Yes, the art of the letdown. And, you know, we started that whole thing, and then I'll make a long story short. I don't want to eat up the whole podcast, but, you know, we started building that equipment, and we ended up, I couldn't find a fitness company to make it for me. So we went to a company that wanted to make it for us, but didn't know what they were doing. They actually made desks and go-karts, but they knew how to weld. And they're like, we want to be in the fitness business. So they started making the product and they did a pretty good job. And then what happened is this company ended up getting a contract from the Taiwanese government for 2 million desks for this new school system. And if you can imagine, what are you going to build? a 2 million desk contract or this putsy company out of salt lakes. Uh, 
So yeah. we went from literally when we started building that stuff, we had Techno Gym, we had Icon and two other companies vying to buy us. The and they're like, yeah, they were like, hey, we, we like smart companies. We like what you're doing. We like this. And we had got some of the biggest distributors in the world. And that's how those companies had heard of us. And people who were distributing their equipment were distributing our Vicor equipment. And it was going swimmingly well. I'm thinking, I'm so smart. Look at me. And the funny thing was, two months later, we had had a big peel that was going to Europe and going to us, and it didn't show up. And so I'm on the phone to the factory going, hey, what's going on? And they give, they're giving me some runaround. So I jump on a plane and head over to Asia to find out what's going on. When I get there, they set up everything like they're working on our stuff. And as soon as I leave, they take it down and don't do it. So the order wow. shows up eight months late. And when it shows up, it was because they finally had bothered them so much. They hired these people that didn't know what they were doing to build it. And it was total crap when it got there. Wow. And wow. Container, we had 10 containers that were basically unusable. And we didn't know it. And seven of those containers went to Europe. Mm. And they opened the boxes and they're like, uh, Beavis, we got a problem. Wow. So that was when we, and during that time, I had been building the TerraCore in the back warehouse as just a project of my own. I was just playing around with it. And every one of these, we finally found the right company to make the fitness equipment the right way. But the whole time I'm dumping money into it like a drunk sailor. I'm just like, oh, and my wife's looking at me like, I hope you know what you're doing. And I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and you're so, saying, I hope I do too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it turned out that all this, we ended up having to refund all the money for all ten or all seven containers that went to our distributors. They backed out of everything else from there on in. And they said, oh, we said, well, we got a new factory. Everything's great. They said, okay, send us one piece of everything and we'll see if we like it. Well, that was almost to air freight everybody one piece of everything, as you know, how big and expensive fitness equipment is. Right. It was about a $9,000 investment and we had 11 distributors. Wow. And so we just refunded all their money, all this. So it was something that it wasn't going to happen. So we pivoted and started focusing on the TerraCore and it fit more of what we were trying to do. And quite frankly, I had no choice but to keep going. I really was so tired of sucking my thumb and waking up in the fetal position that <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to quit and just call it a day. And everyone's like, no, we were on to something. And I'm like, no, we weren't. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> what ended up And happening that's pretty common with entrepreneurs and creators is that you often run into those times where when something doesn't quite work right, it doesn't land the way that you think it's going to, or you have a manufacturing or distribution problem, uh, you do run into those roadblocks. And I think that's pretty common with an entrepreneurial and creative mindset. So, I mean, you're certainly speaking my language. I can't tell you the number of ideas that have just been uh, stillborn at, at a certain point. Uh, so what, what did you do to get yourself up and going? You said that uh, you, you had to get it because you were sick of sucking your thumb. But what, what did you do to get up and, and get going in the morning? I think it's, that's a normal feeling. Yeah. I mean, it was the only thing that really motivated me was fear. I just hmm. sold a previous company that I had. And for the first time in a long time, I was feeling, you know, I was feeling super flush. It was like, 
oh, maybe I'll check out. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I won't do anything. No one can tell me, you know, I'll just do mm-hmm. whatever I want. And then I'd end up dumping 90% of it back into this to pay back the people that had paid for their, you know, just all the fiascos that had happened. So I'd went from feeling pretty smart to, you know, 20 minutes from them knocking on my door to put a eviction notice on my house. Mm. And so it was fear that really got me going. Okay. And it was just, and that doesn't seem like a very positive spin on it, but that's really every day I got up and thought, geez, I'm kind of old. I've given my family a decent life and I don't want them to lose it. I better figure this out. And fear, fear is a powerful it, motivator at times. Yeah. And when you don't have a safety net, it's oftentimes during what we call the long cold winter. And that's what every company goes through, where you go from unicorns, puppies, and big dreams to realities of business. You kind of, I don't know if you've ever heard of the book, The J Curve, but yes. you start at the top mm-hmm. of the J and you yeah. slowly go to the bottom of it where the long cold winter is. And then if you're mm. smart or if you're lucky or if you're fortunate, you start to come out of the J up to the top. And that's where you get out of the cold winter and back on to where you need to be. And what had happened, Steve, was one of the guys we work with said, hey, I have an opportunity to get on Shark Tank. And I'm like, well, I'm not going on there. That's not my cup of tea. I'll do it. So he got on there. And from that point, we did, we made about, I think, you know, not to get into numbers or anything, but I think we made about 300 grand in order okay. off the show. And I honestly thought I'm just going to take a small percentage of my money back and I am going to take this 300 grand, put it back in my bank and go home. Hmm. And wow. everybody okay. looked at me like, okay, we just scored a touchdown and you're ready to take your ball and go home. Hmm. <laughs> and I'm hmm. looking at everybody, yeah, we scored a touchdown, but we're down 21 points, folks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's so how did you make the turn? Because you, you yeah, completely they, changed your business model. You were going to gyms, you were trying to get into uh, big boxes like Lifetime, Golds, uh, some of those other places. And then you completely shifted direction with how you were distributing the product. So what, what made you get to where you are right now, where you're primarily going direct to consumer or online, aren't you? Oh yeah. And the funny thing was, is that's not my generation. You know, our generation yeah. was yeah. go to a buyer, get your head kicked in for five months until you finally align with their budget. And then they won't give you a PO for nearly as much as they said they would, or mm-hmm. something will come up and they can't do what they promised. And yeah. that's how you built your business. Yeah. And, during this interim, we knew that direct consumer was kind of the thing, but in order to do it right, it took, you know, it was like going to Vegas. You had to throw down a certain amount on the table to see what your next card would be. Yeah. Well, we had hired some pretty smart fellas to start doing this for us and start building it, but they were working on hundred dollar a day budgets because we were basically on our way out and they were so busy trying to figure out where to mail their resumes to to get employment we weren't really making any traction. So at the end of our meeting after the shark tank thing, we had some real time money in the bank. And we said, I said, I think I'm done. I think I'm just going to cut my losses and move on to the next thing. Because to me, it wasn't a fear. It wasn't anything, but when you do what I do, the one thing that stops you is not having a paintbrush and that paintbrush is capital. Hmm. And so you, you kind of, I thought, okay, I've got other things going. I can take this capital and make it going. And everyone looked at me like, 
you son of a gun. We've all been this, you know, we're going to see this through. So I said, okay, we'll see it through. Take the 300 grand and go, go start advertising and let's see what happens if we can get any. And they were right. From there on in, the company just started. It took six months, but after that, it just started going crazy. The whole, you know, the whole COVID thing didn't hurt because people started working out at home. Right. So the timing right. was right. Everything was there just to give us the momentum. But then after that, they really got good at what they were doing. And we met a lot of smart people along the way who mm-hmm. said, wow, look what you've done. Let's jump in and help. And as soon as they started helping, as you guys know, nothing builds momentum like momentum. So we just right. simply kept pedaling faster and faster. And I, you know, never came over because I didn't want to start taking fruit off the tree when we needed all the capital. And so I started my own little gig with the lithium while they were doing this. And it has really, I, I, I don't get that excited about business stuff because that's a good way to, you know, get too high, too low. So I try to stay even keel, but what they're doing is it's really exciting. I mean, every day is holy smoke. We broke another record. So yeah, it is. Wow. It's pretty cool to watch. I mean, I, I think uh, from those initial days of you and I talking uh, with trying to get your products into lifetime and then seeing where you're at now. And I see the advertisements and I saw, Oh, what was it? A few months ago, I saw uh Serba and some of the uh, videos and the ads and, and that guy is probably the most creative trainer that I've ever seen in my life and uh, can come up with a million Miles? different ways. Have What's you that? seen Miles do his stuff? Miles oh yeah. I saw it. Yeah. When <laughs> Miles was doing his boxing stuff, I mean, it was uh, so great, great to see that evolution of that business and to see that sticking through it and uh, you know, shifting gears and how you were doing the business has really made an impact. And, and that leads me to my question about uh, lithium. I remember you saying that with lithium, you came up with this idea and some of these car waxes years and years ago, but the idea eventually ended up sitting on the shelf for a really long time because the business model wasn't working uh, until you decided to do it slightly different. And so what was, what was the shift with starting lithium uh, and taking these waxes out there? I'd love to have you tell that story of when did you create this? Because this was not created yesterday, right? No. No, and then funny. where is it now? Well, so basically, I just, like I'd mentioned before, I'd always was intrigued with formulating things. And I was always messing around with chemistry and playing around and I just had this idea for a better way to wax your car and make it easier. And, you know, when you and I had talked at lunch a while back and I told you, I'd come up with this formula that was really great. But one thing that you get good at when you do this kind of stuff is I can run a business plan through my head between my house and my office. And if there's certain hurdles I can't overcome quickly in my head, I probably move to the next one because Mm. the problem is, is if it passed my initial smell test, then it's, you, you have to, you're almost committed to it from the universe standpoint. You know what I mean? And some people you say, when do you stop, when do you stop digging? You know, when do you come to the conclusion you're not going to hit water? Well, 
you never stop digging because if you've done your homework, you know a couple of adjustments here and there will take you where you needed to go. But you don't, you didn't see the whole road from the beginning. You just mm-hmm. knew that the ending was where you needed to be and it was possible to get there. So with the wax, my big hurdle that I didn't quite get over yet, and it's because it was it didn't exist in my head, was the distribution channel. So we had made this great wax, but it was super expensive. And back in the 90s, you, you basically went to Checker Auto Parts or Walmart, and you would pick up a thing, a tin of wax, you know, from Mothers or Meguiar's, and it cost you $4.99, and that's what you did. And right. those there was four giants that dominated. And so there was really no chance you were going to get into one of those big boxes when your product was three times as expensive. You really didn't have the infrastructure to do all the things you needed to to get in there. And even if you did, they would have tested you in one or two stores. So what I did is I thought, okay, I'm going to try something different and I'm going to put ads. And it was very analog back then. I'm going to put ads in the back of all these sports car and sports club magazines that all these car aficionados go to. But I didn't have a lot of money to put big ads. So I had to I had to be able to convince them to buy this stuff mail order at $19 a tube when they could go down to checker and buy one for $3.99. You know, and I, I had only two column inches. So I had to do it in three words or less. And oh, I came up with the yeah. slogan, hydrate your paint. And everyone's oh, wow. hydrate your paint. And so that kind of started a little curiosity. And we had this just makeshift website, you know, back when everyone would give, give you a quote of that'll be 300,000 to make a website. Well, I got a buddy <laughs> to make me one for a case of beer. And right. it looked like it. But we started and you're using net gear to get on and some exactly. of these old school yeah search <laughs> yeah. engines right yeah so i don't want to make this beleaguer this story too long but we were selling about eight or nine hundred tubes of this stuff a month which exceeded my expectations but it didn't make a business and so you either up the size of your ads we tried that but that didn't really show that it made any higher return on investment so i'm like uh my other company was starting to go really well. And I was doing this as more of a fun kind of thing. So I always had car wax, you know? And so I decided, well, the distribution channel is not really showing me that running an ad in the back of the magazine makes a company. So I kind of phased it out and I had everyone who bought the stuff sending me letters. Why are you doing this? It's the greatest. Can I buy your final cases out? Mm. And all my buddies <laughs> were like, dude, don't give that up. That's so cool. So I gave it to three different friends. I said, here, take the business and it's yours. Well, I don't have any money to pay for it. I just go do something with it. I don't care. You don't owe me anything. Just take it. And they all started and stopped, started and stopped and never really did anything with it. So that was basically what had happened. And as I needed, my contract was up with another company that I'd sold and I had a five-year contract with them. My time was coming up. And I had to find something to do. The fitness company wasn't doing well enough at the time yet to pay my bills. And so I thought I need a golden parachute. So I started playing around with this software that let me see what people were selling online, how many units they were selling. And it turns out the whole market had shifted while I was asleep. And now all these boutique car detailing product companies had started to emerge and they were all selling online direct. And I'm thinking to myself, who in the crap goes to the trouble of going online to buy car wax when I can just run <laughs> down the street? 
And it turns out it wasn't about that. It was about getting away from corporate America and the old school brands that just made crap as much as they could, as cheap as they could. Yeah. And so what year is this? This is, this is 2017, 16. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So three, four years ago. So it was basically the same metaphor as the beer industry, as we touched on earlier in the podcast was everyone was watching Budweiser while off in the other part of the world, all these craft beer makers were changing the industry. Mm -hmm. You know, they were making all these small batch beers that everyone loved and they tasted better and they had a cool culture to them and all these things that went with it, you know, the cool factor. And then, and the detailing business started to evolve into the same thing. And so I said, wait a minute, this was my game. I invented this, not you guys. (laughs) So I put the band back together basically and called my buddy who knew how to formulate the stupid things I'd write on a napkin. And I knew all the ingredients I knew, but I could never get it quite right because I was doing a pinch of this and a dash of that. And he knew how he was a trained chemist. So he started putting it together for me. And we started envisioning what does this brand look like? What does it feel like? What what kind of guy buys it? What kind of girl buys it? Why do they spend $39 for a tin of wax when they can buy one for $5.99 now? Times have changed. Prices have gone up. And we just started building that kind of culture around this person that we had invented in our head, who he was. And it turned out that person was my second personality that I always kept suppressed. And so (laughs) (laughs) this is part of the multiple personalities. That's the next episode, Bill, when we talk about multiple personality disorder. Yes. (laughs) Oh, I'll I'll be your host for that one. There you go. Yeah. But that was basically it. And it turned into something that not only was I passionate about, but which is dangerous as well, because most of my other companies, I love every product. They're like kids. I just love them all. But I'm not passionate about what you do. Yeah, I love fitness and I love I went to the gym every day and you and I right. saw your daily basis. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it wasn't my passion. It was the way that I wouldn't die early. I so, <laughs> right, that right. Was, that was where I linked to this. But I I am absolutely addicted to cars. And you love cars too and you do some amazing things with cars. And so I'm you know when you and I met over your your 911 Porsche that right, day right. parking lot boy, we were like, we were kindred souls. I was, <laughs> and you're telling me all the things you've done to it and showing me the pictures like you would your grandkids yeah. or your kids. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff that is weird enough, but that's what gets me going. And so there you go. We found a way to put it all together, even though the plan had to be altered slightly. We yeah, are able and to- so it's what I love about the story, Bill, when, when you were telling me this and then reminding me today and telling our listeners about it is that, here was an idea that sat on a shelf for a really long time. And you actually tried to give the idea away to somebody else or a few people to take it. The timing was right. You looked at it again, you stayed open to opportunity and you said, okay, we're going to strike while the iron's hot. Somebody's pumping the bellows, but the King is back. And the King made this, uh, (laughs) this industry and he's going to show that he's still the King. 
and the business is doing well, which uh, is is great to see that it's it's not just about perseverance, but sometimes I think evolution is about taking some time away, stepping back from a creative project, letting your evolution and letting the evolution of a uh, an industry or a sector catch up to what what it uh, needs to be in order for you to be successful at it. Mm. What a great way to go. Yeah. And, and I, I actually kind of call that the Michael Jordan syndrome when you walk away. I was away just going to say, yeah. Yeah. You, you walk away. Yeah. And it, 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 it's almost as if um, I'm, I'm going to digress just a second. Um, great saxophone, um, jazz saxophonist Charlie Parker said, you learn something and then you just leave it alone. And it, and it comes back in a whole nother way, full of energy and form. And I think that's what we're talking about here is you walk away from something and it, even as you're walking away, it's still marinating in your head. Uh, you're and so you, right, Miles. Yeah. And you come back to it, like re-energized, like fully conscious of it. And you literally have something that's brand new, although you recognize it totally. Yeah. And, and that is so true because your subconscious is working 24 seven on a problem. And the best thing I can right. do is think about it until I kind of feel like my eyes need to be scratched out and then walk away. And if there's something to it, it's almost like your phone coming back and remind is a reminder and dinging. You'll be driving yeah. down the street and it'll click and you'll go, ah, there's the missing piece of the puzzle. And it's funny. Yeah. I didn't give away the company just for fun, but because all the pieces of the puzzle fit in it, and I knew that it would work if someone just finished assembling the pieces, you know, and yeah. I'd, I'd gone yeah. through the whole thing and I'm like, no, that's all the pieces fit there. But a lot of times too, you have to wait for technology to catch up and, or something else to come along where I've got this great idea, but computers hadn't gotten there yet. So we didn't know how to do it. So we left mm. it alone and now we're back to it. And yeah. that's kind of what happened here is, the distribution channels just weren't right yet. So it's amazing, you know, with what, what you're talking about miles and the stepping away from it, that's a harder thing for me to do oftentimes. And this is where I think Bill, you and I talked about this at lunch where I may have 50 different ideas of things that I want to work on. And so I, you know, my natural tendency is to go into all 50 directions at once and just go, go, go and try and make this stuff happen. But oftentimes, like you said, it is the subconscious that will continue to work on it over time. If you do take a step away from it and you're going to yeah. get a different perspective. Yeah. So I want to take a left turn for just a second, because I've got some of my best friends that will kill me if we don't talk about this. Uh, in the podcast. Now, years ago, um, I was, I had a long haired hippie vibe about me. I was a dirt bag climber, as they called it. Uh, I had a bunch of buddies that we were lucky to shower once a week. Um, if that well, hold on, hold on. I got to stop you because you are the best dressed man I've ever met now. So what? <laughs> most people would not, uh, not, uh, if they didn't know me back in this day, they would be shocked by this, but Literally, it was torn T-shirts and shorts, uh, climb, get dirty. If I looked like I was dirty, I'd wash off. If I didn't, then I was okay, and I'd put on more deodorant. <laughs> um, in fact, there was one, one time where some friends and I 
we took a road trip down to Lake Tahoe, did some climbing in the Lake Tahoe area, went from Tahoe down to Yosemite. We stopped somewhere along the way in California. And we had a couple of people stop us in the grocery store telling us that we smelt so bad that they would buy deodorant for us. (laughs) And so we, the next thing, you know, we're at a car wash uh, because this is how cheap we were too, as dirt bag climbers, hosing each other off uh, in the spray off car wash. So that paints a picture of what, what type of, uh, you know, late teens, probably early twenties I was. And we used to go into this warehouse to drool over these backpacks. And I've still got some of my friends today that have some original Vortex backpacks. And the thing that blows me away, Bill, is that I didn't know until recently, and you and I have known each other for a few years now, but I didn't know until recently that that was your baby, that you created Vortex. And so I'd love to have you tell the story because it's very nostalgic for me and my growing up. And I think a lot of us that were climbers back in the day in Utah um, and saw this cool backpacking company coming out of Utah. How did you come up with this idea for this revolutionary backpack? Oh, that's just so funny. My, I guess my past is going to haunt me forever. <laughs> so, and it's funny, too, because I, I met a kid uh, the other day that I hadn't seen for a while. And he said to me, he goes, you know what? My brother still carries around his Vortex pack on everywhere he goes. He's been, yeah. he's been in Europe. He's been, and I'm like, oh, geez. But that's a funny story. So this comes back to pivoting again. And kind of having to reinvent yourself in a way that uh, we had come up with this idea. Okay, I owned a company that made golf bags. And this company, we basically had revolutionized how golf bags were made in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And you remember back in the day, you used to have to strap metal legs onto a golf bag. You guys aren't that old. but no, I remember this, so Yeah. And you'd strap metal legs to your golf bag. And then if you wanted to set it down, the legs would pop out and it had a belt around the top and the bottom. And we had devised integrated legs into the bag itself. And two other Mm -hmm. companies were working on it at the same time we were. And I didn't have a pot to piss in, but I'd had this concept of how to integrate these legs. And then we had also, you know, it's a funny story because we didn't have money to make molds. So we got this company that made sprinkler pipe to actually run their sprinkler pipe in black for us. So the pipe would come out black for the legs and stuff. <laughs> and that was how we got around that That's problem. Awesome. We didn't, and we did not have money either to make the neck for a golf bag, which is segregated so the different clubs will fit in there. Right, you know, right. irons up front, dry woods in the back. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we took sprinkler pipe again and we would fill the sprinkler pipe with hot silica sand and it would make the sprinkler pipe like a noodle and we made all these wooden molds that looked like a golf bag lid or neck and mm-hmm. we'd run the sprinkler pipe and like you were threading pasta through it while the thing was still hot then we'd pull it out and it would look fantastic like a golf bag neck but it was white like sprinkler pipe and we're mm. like well, you can't sell that. Everyone knows the sprinkler pipe it says PVC right on. <laughs> We're like, holy shit. So we ended up going in. We had this, I had this idea that I found this company that made motorcycle grips that were made out of neoprene. And it was called Grab On back then. 
And so we called that. Yeah. yeah. We called them and said, would you make your motorcycle grips in three foot lengths for us? And they said, why? <laughs> and we're like, well, <laughs> we're doing with it. Like, that's not going to work. We go, just do it for us. And so they ended up begrudgingly <laughs> doing it for us. And we quickly became the biggest customer they had. Wow. And what we did is we took these neoprene tubes and we threaded it around the sprinkler pipe. So you ended up with this furry sort of soft neck lining. And at that time, graphite shafts were starting to come out. Okay. And everybody at the golf shows would come and our company was called Airbuilt. And everyone at the golf shows would come and they would notice how soft these necks were. Everyone else was still making hard plastic ones. And I'm getting to the story of the Vortex stuff, but you'll, you'll see how yeah, it went. Right, so right. I'm, you know, I'm 22 years old and we're at the golf show on a credit card that I'm trying to think the whole time how the hell I'm going to pay this credit card off. And everybody's coming up and feeling the necks of this and going, you made this for graphite. So it wouldn't splinter the graphite. And I look <laughs> over at the kid I'm working with. And I'm like, you're exactly right. And see how soft it is. That graphite <laughs> never going bad. And you know, we had people writing their names on the back of business cards, throwing it over the top of the crowds around looking at our golf. Wow. Because the other thing we did was the bag now had a revolutionary neck. We invented because we couldn't, we had a, batch of bags that were sewn wrong and they were too floppy and loose so when we pulled them over the frame of the bag they didn't fit right so i shoved a piece of foam in the side of it and everyone goes well what the hell are you going to do with that i go that's just not foam that is there to save your hip so when you're walking it doesn't bounce off of your hip while you're doing it <laughs> if you look at any golf bag today, they also a piece of foam between your hip and the bag and so this it, all that uh, that idea came from a manufacturing mistake. Yes, I love and we it. called it. We put it <laughs> oh right on gosh. the impact, and we called it a hip saver. Oh, and that everyone's is everyone's thinking we're freaking geniuses, and so we didn't have a computer or anything. We just had a pallet, and we called it the order in pallet and the order out pallet. And orders were stacked probably three feet high on the out pallet, wow. and about four feet high on the in pallet because we are always behind schedule. So we're pulling this stuff. You know, we're just pulling orders, see what we can fill as fast as we can do it. I've got all these guys who are basically throwing cash at it because golf is sexy in 1993. Yeah, this kid's big. got a good idea yeah. and everybody wants new golf stuff. And I have no freaking idea what I'm doing. So we're just throwing out golf bags like crazy and it is going nuts. And it turns out that we were doing so well, all these guys who had invested in the company thought, there's no way we're leaving all this money in the care and hands of this 24-year-old. And I'm the 24-year-old. So <laughs> they bring in a president out of the medical business and hire him to run it. And he's just a first class, if I can say it on a podcast, douchebag. Yeah, so, say whatever you want on the podcast. Oh, God. So he just starts running it you know, just turning it into this corporation. And every time we'd go to develop new products, you're not making that happen. This isn't in the budget. We haven't planned this. And I'm like, I didn't sign up for this. But mm -hmm. so I go through this for a year and I'm miserable. But while I'm doing this, I am okay. developing a system for molding foam. And if you remember on the Vortex backpacks, yeah. all the foam was molded so it would fit your body like a shoe would fit your, your foot. Right. And so we right. started we started molding this foam and I thought this is going to change the golf industry. 
we could do so many things with the shoulder straps and with everything because it's so ergonomic. And I'm, I'm in my house molding foam by putting it in the oven. And before the house fills up with smoke, I'd run out in the driveway and run it over with my car to see what impressions I would get and how long it would hold the impression. And I'm developing this system and I've gotten to the point where I was getting pretty good at it, but I hadn't shown any of these investors yet. And I didn't because I was getting married that week. My wife and I went to Mexico for our honeymoon using the same credit card that I hadn't paid off yet from the golf show. It was awesome. So we get there. And when I come back, I noticed that my office had been moved and I'm like, so Brett, what happened here? Well, you know, yeah, we sold the company. And they basically had broken the company and they'd been working on it for months and never said anything to me. And they sold it off to the company that before Nike was into golf, Nike was farming everything out to see how they wanted to go about the program. And so they sold all the molds, all the, you know, all the IP to this company. And by that time I'm thinking, Oh, you sold the company. Well, where's my money? Well, at 24, I really wasn't paying attention that these guys were dumping hundreds of thousands of dollars into this thing. And I was getting diluted quite heavily mm. the whole time. So I owned 1.78% of it. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, I think I got a check for nine grand or something like that. I, I don't remember. Mm. But my wife, poor little blessed gal she is, she went from marrying this guy who had unlimited earning potential to being unemployed in the course of one week. Wow. And so, <laughs> so the funny thing was, is we did a lot of the production in-house. And everyone that was there said, well, aren't you going to take us with you? I'm like, I don't have a pot to piss in, guys. I don't know what you want. And some of the sewers and some of the other people that I was quite dear with, you know, it said, we don't care. We'll work for free. Hmm. I've got this much savings. I've got this. Just do something and let us come with you. So I did like any idiot would do with no money. I went and rented a storage shed that had a little office attached to it. And I started thinking, how do we find a killer application for this molded foam? And here's the funny part of it is, I thought, well, backpacks would be phenomenal because we could actually not take square blocks of foam and push it against your body and start pressure points and all these things. We'll actually mold it so it fits you like a glove. And everyone's like, well, that's a good idea. So I started calling all these backpacking companies, Dana Design back in the day, if you're a climber, everyone yeah. knows Osprey and Dana right. Design. Yeah. Well, they were the two greatest brands of all times. And I called them and said, hey, I want to become a dealer. Send me your pricing and send me everything to become a dealer so I could learn about the industry. I had no mm-hmm. idea. And they're all like, oh, we're not taking on any new dealers. And we're six months back order. Oh, as an entrepreneur, you're hearing this and you're going, cha-ching, I'll come <laughs> in and take over all of it. And this the funny thing is, so Dana Design was the number one top rated. I mean, there was Kelty, which was the biggest out there at the time, right? But Dana yeah. Design was really seen as the um, the Lamborghini of backpacks. But I, it's funny to hear you talk about these square molds. And that's all they did. They took these square molds and they would cut them into different sections. And somehow that was supposed to be comfortable on your back. And I, as, as a climber and a backpacker, Oh my gosh, that just it drove me crazy. None of them were comfortable. None yeah, of them fit. 
And this story has such a, a funny twist to it. It's almost a movie in a way, just how it all went, how it all came together. So we're in this storage shed. I'm out of money. I'm out going to the chamber of commerce and doing whatever I could trying to find money. And the guy that who originally invested in the golf bag company who brought in all these people felt really bad. Mm. And he's like, geez, you know, I didn't know it was going to turn out like this. We had a good thing. We should have just kept it you and I. And so he, he gives me 20 grand and that gets us to the next level. Well, this whole time I'm learning, I'm thinking there's all this pent up demand for backpacking because these guys can't even fill their orders. Well, mm-hmm. what I learned at the time though, is it had nothing to do with a pent up demand for backpacks. You could get backpacks anywhere. It was a pent up demand for the Dana design brand. Mm-hmm. That was the power, was the power of Dana design. That's why they couldn't keep up with orders is Dana Gleason was such an iconic figure, such an amazing guy that he was, he was the reason, you know, he built this brand with this culture of fun and all the dirtbag climbers loved him. And he was a dirtbag yeah. climber and he yeah. was just this bigger than life guy that would just sit there like the Pope at these trade shows and everyone would just wait to have an audience with him. Mm -hmm. And we build these backpacks and it turns out nobody wanted them. And I'm like, Oh, so, so here's the funny thing. I'll go, I'll I'll digress slightly. I go to Kirkham's and you know, of Kirkham's being a local guy, some of the people may not, but it's one of the nicer mountaineering shops. And it had been about six months. We weren't bringing any money. And we had a couple of guys we were doing pro deal with. We were selling some to the ski resorts, but it was, it was pretty cold. And we went to Kirkham and said, Hey, come on, carry our stuff. And they, he, I remember the manager at Kirkham said, I'm not going to carry your stuff. And he, I go, you just said it was the best stuff in the world. And it was so technologically advanced and all your guys who worked here loved it and wanted to use it. I go, why not? And he goes, well, you're not doing anything to drive people into my store. You're simply going to cannibalize from the brands that I'm invested in. Mm. Your brand is going to take away from them and I'm not going to make any more money. And then all the pieces started to come together about the power of a brand, distribution channels, driving, having a pull brand that pulls people and wants to attract them like a magnet. So we're building this and we're building a little bit of traction and we kept being really innovative in the industry though. And we were doing things with, instead of using aluminum stays for the frame, we were using polycarbonate and we were using Kevlar fabrics and we were doing things with molded foam that blew people away. And so we go to the trade shows and Dana Gleason comes up from Dana Designs and says, wow, I really have been watching you guys the last two years. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the last trade show we're going to be at because I'm flat ass broke. (laughs) He goes, I've sent a lot of the dealers over to you that we're not going to open, but I thought it would help you. And I've kind of given you my endorsement. Mm. And I think that you guys, I just respect what you're doing. And that was enough right there because I I idolized this guy. And I was just like, wow, he's such a good writer. He's such a funny guy he doesn't take himself too seriously he was the basic genesis of how i wanted to see our brand progress mm-hmm. and but he was already doing it you know so then i thought well i better be genuine to myself and not try to follow him so we started doing this and we started making a little traction but the problem was this we still couldn't get past the ospreys the north faces the gregory's and the danas they were 10 ton gorillas in stores that were only big enough to carry two or three brands. Yeah. And we just never would be that. We are the peripheral brand in everything. 
So I'll speed the story up. I know it's it's a long one. So what happened was one day I'm getting ready to close the doors, just like every day, and thinking, hell, <laughs> so I got to go get a job. And that's <clears throat> the living crap out of me. And we just had a new baby. And my wife was, you know, I never let her really know how bad things were. And I'd made good friends with the manager at our bank who would always call me and go, everyone's here cashing their paychecks and you're a little short. And I'm like, Chris, how short? I don't know, 26 grand. I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you be bringing some money today. She goes, he better, or I'm going to come down there and take it out of your ass. And she would clear all my payroll for me. Wow. And, and so those kind of relationships that just, you didn't want to disappoint those kind of people. Yeah. So, you yeah. Go. so one day I'm back there thinking, okay, who am I going to sublease this building to? Cause I'm signed. I have three more years. I'd have to file bankruptcy because I can't get out of the lease and I smell spray paint. And this is kind of how the universe is serendipitous. If you're 100% in and you're not going to give up at least out loud. <laughs> and you're <laughs> going to give up every day, but out loud. Yeah. You never. And I smell spray paint and I'm like, what the hell? I go back there and this fella that works for us is back there spray painting one of our backpacks camouflage. And I said, wow. What the hell are you doing? You're killing me here with these fumes. He goes, well, you know, I'm going hunting next week. And the hunting pack sucks so bad after using Vortex for these two years I've worked here. I can't carry one of them. They suck. And I'm like, really? So how bad do they suck? <laughs> and he starts. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, huh? And I started researching the industry. And because our business was so cyclical, we did really good in the climbing seasons in the summer and in the winter. But spring and fall, you know, they just weren't buying product. because, And so I was really quite worried about having to train all these people. And we're building everything in Salt Lake. I turn around and I'm thinking to myself, holy shit. What if we start taking all this technology that is so cutting edge, but we still can't get in because we don't have a brand and we take it over to hunting? And Paul looks at me and goes, yeah, I guess that's a good idea. I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> takes off so i have 13 grand in the bank i use nine thousand of it to go and buy all the materials i need to make some hunting packs and that was like my final role mm -hmm. i take it and i'm like this better freaking work so we start making our vortex packs in camouflage and changing some things and some nuances you know that fit what the hunters needed and went and showed them the sportsman's warehouse. They were intrigued. They were like, whoa, these are the greatest things in the world. Everyone came into the, into the buyer's office. His name was Dale. And he was a great guy. And he brought in every department manager. They're freaking out. And they go, where's the price list? I hand them the price list. Well, you paid $450 for a Dana, Dana design pack back then. Yeah. And you paid yeah. 450 for a Vortex pack back then. They saw our prices and fell over dead. They went, they said, I'll sell 12 of these in a year. Oh, wow. There's no way I can do this. Those prices are outrageous. So I'm like, okay, we're done. So I scoop up everything, hold back my tears, go home, throw it all in the garage or in the storage part of our building and go home. Just feeling utterly deflated. Mm -hmm. Well, once again, serendipity comes along and I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to, what am I doing here? What, how am I going to do this? I turn around and I'll make it short. I, I apologize for rambling, but no, it's a great story. 
great story. story. Yeah. yeah. A guy comes in and goes, hey, Dale from Sportsman's Warehouse said you make some pretty cool packs. And I kind of half-heartedly looked up at him, you know, because I'm thinking, don't waste my time. And he goes, can you mind if I check them out? And I said, yeah, they're right there. I opened the door for him. He looks at me and goes, wow, this stuff is unbelievable. I said, yeah. And I said, and here's the price list. He goes, good stuff costs money. He had my attention. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He's speaking your language. And yeah, and I go, and do I know you? And he goes, my name is Webb Adams, and I am a rep, and I carry the best hunting gear on the planet, but I don't have any soft goods. And he goes, I'm getting my wisdom teeth pulled. Or he goes, I'm, I've got an impacted tooth right now, and I've got to go get it pulled out. But I'm going to come back tomorrow and get these samples. I want to show them to some customers of mine. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. So I said, great, see ya. Well, he comes back later that afternoon with gauze, all bloody in his mouth. He looked like the gauze <laughs> dried blood around his mouth. He goes, I was so excited. I had to come get him right now. So wow. I go, wow, okay. And I'm getting ready to go home. And so I throw him all the samples. The next day he comes in and he's written $7,000 in orders. Oh my all- gosh. And wow. I'm like, 7,000 in orders at that time was like, he had saved us. And so- wow. He became our rep and our advocate for good stuff cost money. And wow. it wasn't a matter of four months until he had finally convinced the people at Sportsman's Warehouse. And in two years, we had become their biggest supplier of hunting packs. Wow. And so the story's funny because we changed, we called the company Badlands and it became a hunting pack company. And it mm-hmm. took some time, but we invented the category of performance soft goods back then and when you're the guy who gets through the wall first you're the guy who gets through bloody mm-hmm. but if you're smart you can get there be the first and so we got we started taking over the world in hunting and the funny thing was is then all of a sudden all these mountaineering companies started seeing the potential and how much volume we were doing and they the guys from gregory came in and so did dana designs well he had sold the company he had now had a company called mystery ranch and so he had turned around and started making honey packs. And the whole irony of this whole story turns out that then the whole system had flopped. Instead of me waiting to talk to him at trade shows and wait in line to see Dana design, he came up to us and waited in line to get in our trade show but <laughs> to come and it. shake my hand and say, help me out with this hunting stuff and how we get started. Wow. <laughs> And you really, you helped to, to usher in and transition hunting into what it is today. Because I, so I was at the barber shop the other day and my barber is a hunter and we were talking about hunting and, and how it's changed over the years. And I've never been hunting, but he's been a hunter his entire life. And he said, you know, back in the day, Steve, when my dad was out hunting, you could be the big guy with the belly and you're carrying your, your gun and you'd go sit in the, in your, in the bushes, or you'd go sit in your, um, hideaway area he goes now these guys are out there they're in performance gear they are running they are uh you know you you, it's like a race to get to the best spots and it's fascinating for me to hear that it was vortex which turned into badlands that helped to usher in this performance hunting gear what a what a cool cool story yeah and it's so funny too because you're right it isn't Bubba hunting anymore. No, and they are no. they are athletes that are training year round, and you cannot find. 
I mean, literally, you would just basically take your kid's knapsack, put it in camouflage, and hang it on the wall. And that's what they were using at the time. Mm -hmm. And so now, anything you would see in mountaineering, which used to be so ahead of the curve and so cutting edge, hunting's usually on it before they are now. And these guys are demanding, you know, the very best of the best. Yeah. You know, Gore-Tex is into it heavily. They're so heavily invested in it, it's not even funny. And all these big companies are just doing it. And funny enough, Badlands kind of started that whole thing, but it wasn't in, you know, progress is not a linear journey. It is freaking ups and downs and a little bit of progress just to keep you coming back enough to kick you right again where it hurts. And then you come back and the next day you get a spike and then you're a dip and then a spike. And, you know, that's why I told you, I, I learned not to get too high or too low. And it's just because of all those things that transpire along the way. You know, and it, it, it's just, it is funny. But one thing I, I would tell anybody in the world that, that my kids, anybody who asked me, there is a power in the universe that detects whether you are all in or you're dabbling. And when yeah. you're all in, doors open and things happen. So it's kind I'm, of funny. I'm going to digress so far away from this, but <laughs> not really. Um, <laughs> Everyone will be grateful, I'm sure. <laughs> well, no, so when far, I say but not really. All right, let's like, see where you go with this. Well, well, because I, the not really part is, I'm going to stay right here with you. But the digression is, how do you teach this spirit? Mm, you know, Steve and I, yeah. Steve and I talk a lot about, you know, we talked about education and, mm -hmm. you know, how and what are the foundational things you need to teach like say in a capitalist society, if capitalism is one of the mantras, what are the subset of things you need to teach to kids? And I recognize in all of the stuff that you've been saying, Bill, the ups, the downs, wanting to quit, not enough money, this, all these things going on. The one thing that ties all this together is your spirit. It's the spirit of tackling something, failing, going deeper in, or as you say, it being all in, um, having these fluctuations of energy that just say, oh, God, I don't know what, what's the next turn going to be. And all of a sudden, the next turn happens. Um, you spoke mm -hmm. of serendipity, but serendipity is a direct result of being all in, even though it, sometimes you don't feel it. And how do you take the spirit of yours and teach this to kids so that they have a roadmap, you know, from the time they're like two years old until they're like in college talking about this kind of stuff. Because I think that might be one of the fundamental things that's so necessary nowadays with kids is how do you have that spirit of creativity and energy and invention to just to progress in a society like this? Like, I loved your spirit and all of this. Well, and I would, I would say for our listeners, you know, I think that the transference of energy from somebody who has this energy, who has that spirit is, is going to come naturally and you teach it naturally. But I, I will say there's probably a lot of people that are going to listen to this podcast and they might be in their 20s, 30s, 40s or 50s that say, yeah, shit, I wish I had that. How do I develop that? Yeah. So what, what, what's some advice, Bill, that you would give to our listeners for how do they foster that type of creative 
all-in mentality that drives their spirit forward. What, what would your what would your bit of advice be for them? It's it's hard because being a father, I try to teach my kids as well, and there is a fine line between stupidly persistent mm-hmm. and dogmatically driven. You know, to do something. Stupidly persistent is okay, I'm going to take a shovel and I'm going to move this mountain here. And I'm not thinking figuratively, I'm thinking literally. Well, is that the best use of your time? And yes, persistent might get you there, but really is that where you want to be? But to see an end picture of what you want to achieve and then burn the boats. Yeah. There is no turning back. There Mm -hmm. is no safety net. There is no quitting. And that doesn't mean once again, that the, the path, the course that you chose is the right one. And I try to tell this to my son, who I work with quite a bit these days. And that is more about see the destination because you don't even know the road until you've gotten halfway through it. Visualize the destination. What, what, yeah. yeah. And I don't, mm. and I'm not trying to be all metaphysical and do all that because I, but I'm just saying it is so true. But if I know, I've got to get to LA and I know what LA looks like. Then I know that, yeah, I'm going to hit a few fences, a couple of roadblocks. I'm going to have some car troubles, Mm -hmm. but I've got to be willing to pivot, readjust and be flexible enough to be open-minded to figure out how to get over each hurdle, knowing that I'm not going to quit till I get to LA. And so if you simplify it in those ways, because I tell you what, Quitting is a habit, just like anything else. And not quitting is a major habit. And so, you know what? Having great habits of eating well doesn't mean you can't have an occasional Sunday. That doesn't break your your whole method, you know? I'm going to have one of those tonight. Yeah. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying, though, is you just have to say, there there is nothing that's going to stop me from getting there. And then I might decide LA is not really my destination. Once I get there, it actually sucks. And I really didn't want to be here, but just knowing that I went through the motions to get there teaches me so much more for the next destination that may be far better for me. And each time you get there, it's a little bit easier. All my companies used to take me 10 years to get traction. Well, now I'm so much smarter. They only take me nine years to get traction. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. But nonetheless, I know know those feelings and I know what to look for. And I know the mistakes I made last time. So I kind of, you kind of have to just like the journey, I guess. You like to, you like pain. So. Well, yeah, and I think that along the way, you do find that there's a, there's some pleasure in that journey. And if you've got that clearly defined definition of what success is to you, and you've, uh, maybe, like you said, maybe Los Angeles isn't the place for you, um, then you, you still got some stories along the way that are going to help you into the next, uh, the next chapter of life. So, uh, Bill, we really appreciate your time today. Uh, It's been great to have this conversation. So uh, for those of uh, our listeners that might be listening from Los Angeles and they think it's not the place for them, do not come to Utah. (laughs) Utah is a worse place. We don't want you here. We don't want your politics here. We're full. 
Uh, so on that note, it's time for us to wrap up another Evolve podcast. I want to thank our, our guest, uh, Bill Crawley, uh, my co-host, Mr. Napping in his chair in Las Vegas, uh, Casey Mitchell, and uh, Mr. I'm still in the Amish's Wi-Fi in Oberlin, Ohio, Miles Riley. <laughs> We've had a great conversation today, and we hope that you, our listeners, took something from it that uh, will help you on your personal evolution. Um, Bill, if people want to get in contact with you, maybe they want to do business with you. Maybe they want to hear about more about your story. What's the best way for people to connect with you? You can just email me at lithium, L-I-T-H-I-U-M, the number 50. So lithium 50 project at gmail.com. Awesome. Comes to me. So I'd love to hear from anybody. Great. Lithium50project at gmail.com. And folks, uh, we'd love for you to follow us on Instagram at evolve underscore cast. Uh, join us for motivation, conversation, and we do giveaways uh, now on the Instagram page. From our Instagram, you can also link to our Facebook group where you can connect with other like-minded evolutionaries and have conversations about your personal evolution, get some advice from your peers and other people who are working on personal growth and evolution. Uh, Miles, uh, how do people get the Evolve mug that you've been drinking from to put their own ramen in, along with all of other great products? <laughs> well, you can just go onto our site. Um, again, we've got a lot of great gear, the, the mugs, the case for your phone, um, just a lot of cool stuff. Uh, just go to our website at evolve.com and uh, there you go. And also, folks, um, create this community. Go out and create your own evolved communities. Get together with friends. Talk with each other. Um, no matter how big, how small the process is, talk about it. And then get back to us and tell us how you're faring. Great. Thank you. And uh, once again, we want to thank Bill Crawley for joining us today. And now it's time for you to get out there and evolve. And evolve. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Evolve Podcast. Join us next week as we dig into creativity, determination, and grit with one of Hollywood's hardest working actors, Matthew Bellows. <laughs>